Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today Calgary MP Michelle Rempel-Garner talks about her private member's bill to regulate cryptocurrency. Port Moody Mayor Rob Bagramov has the details on his pitch for BC cities to send used body armor and other police gear to Ukraine. And dietitian Danny Renouf has the results of a new SALT survey. Hint, we need to cut back. Danny has all the details coming right up. So let's get started. It is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. She is the Member of Parliament for Calgary Nose Hill, very well known to Canadians in every corner of the country. Michelle Rempel-Garner joins us this morning to talk about cryptocurrency and her new private member's bill to rein in the Wild West show that is cryptocurrency. Michelle Rempel-Garner, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Michelle. Good to talk to you again. It's been a long, long time. Tell us why. It has. Uh, yeah, really. Tell us why you're, you're on the cryptocurrency bandwagon. You're not the only member of the Conservative Caucus to be talking about it these days, but you have presented a private member's bill that is being, how, do, how is it being favorably received? Uh, do you have? It s- is. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, across party lines too, which is, um, which is a really good sign. So, so the bill itself, essentially says, look, um, digital assets, uh, so the bill talks about cryptocurrencies, or sorry, crypto assets, um, which isn't just cryptocurrency. It's also things like non-fungible tokens, uh-huh. a great term for a Sunday morning, or sat- Sunday morning. Um, but what it does is it admits that the, this is an economy that's growing, uh, that can have very positive impacts on the Canadian economy, job growth, innovation. At the same time, there's also probably a need for some safeguards. Uh, a lot of Canadians uh, might be familiar with the Quadriga CX scandal, and uh, because it's, it's a, there's a documentary streaming on Netflix now, and um, I think people are asking, okay, well, what is the role of government in this space? Certainly, industry is as well too. So, what the bill does is it uh, compels the federal finance minister, Christia Freeland to work with innovators in industry and, most importantly, provincial governments as well to lead the policy discussion on this. It doesn't prescribe any particular set of regulations, but what it does is is it says that innovators who are working in the space should be, their voices should be put forward first, and then a framework should result from those consultations. Interesting. Michelle, and your homework, preparing to write this bill and present it to the House, obviously you've done a lot of, of uh, research on who particularly is most fond of cryptocurrency. I would suspect, and it's just a shot in the dark here, but I would suspect the younger the investor, the more uh, uh, compliant they might be or uh, to uh, to adopt c- cryptocurrency in other words i find more skepticism about cryptocurrency and that whole sector of finance among older people than i do among younger people who seem to be embracing it pretty enthusiastically um i, I mean i think that's true but also not true um certainly crypto assets um there, there's people who are investing in in the space across all demographics. Sure. And certainly there are people who are innovating in the space across all demographics. I think the key for Canada is to take an optimistic approach and say, look, um, as a country, we've been talking about ways to diversify our economy, particularly into things like digital assets. So we should be an, uh, an attractive place for growth and investment in these things at the same time, making sure that we are asking the community about safeguards that are needed 
and and then putting in place uh, a common sense system that doesn't uh, stifle innovation but provides certainty in order for Canada to, to be that, that hub. Right. Now, Michelle, at a press conference recently, I have you quoted in the Calgary Herald, so it must be true, uh, uh, that uh, you, you talked about the uh, this is the first time that crypto assets will be debated in the House, uh, in, even though it's been around for 14 years. And you also talked about Canada should be attracting billions of dollars of investment in this sector. But in fact, we're losing crypto asset talent innovators and business to other jurisdictions is that simply because they have defined parameters uh within which cryptocurrency functions and in canada it's still kind of well dodgy um i I would say to a large extent yes i wouldn't characterize it as dodgy i would characterize it as uncertain okay Um, but you can you can imagine that if um that if uh, you know you were going to make a big investment into a field, you'd want to know if there were going to be new government rules put in place before you made that investment. So you could be thinking about, okay, well, how do I operate in this space, right? Mm-hmm. And other jurisdictions like the European Union, uh, even President Biden in the U.S. Have, has put forward an, a, an executive or fed, a directive to ask the government to, to put rules in place. Um, those are needed to provide certainty and clarity, both for industry as well as for investors. Um, we we have seen big talent lost from Canada. I think about uh, Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, mm. the cryptocurrency that um, you know is, is is very highly valued. Um, that 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 left Canada, right? And it's like, oh man, we should have we should have been able to keep that type of investment here. Sure. At the same time, making sure that. Um, there's even education in the public. I, I think you know your point about younger investors too is valid. At the same time, I think that there's you know there's some assumptions among people who are investing in this space that government is regulating it in, in the same way that uh, traditional securities are, and and that's often not the case. So I think that the public also needs to understand where the benefits are, but also where some of the risks are. And uh, again, I, I, that's something that I would hope would come up in this framework process that's being outlined in the bill. Now, I want to give you a couple of minutes to talk about the budget. So let's wrap this this uh, cryptocurrency segment up by simply asking you, because you, you started actually kind of positively in terms of an appetite across party lines for some kind of organization of cryptocurrency in Canada. Are you therefore optimistic that this private member's bill could pass? Um, so the NDP has expressed support, uh, and the other parties have kind of said, like, look, like, are you open to amendment? Could we take this to the committee process? Here's some of the things I like. Here's some of the things I think I would change. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's, it's really cool, Sterling, because that's how the legislative process should work yes. in Canada, right? We should. It shouldn't just be this partisan debate where everybody has rigid positions and uh, we don't work collaboratively. So... To me, I am optimistic because I've had legislators from all parties say, okay, this is actually a great initiative. Um, I would have done this. Can we talk about that at committee? So um, who knows? Uh, We can only hope and work collaboratively. And yeah, it's... um it's been a really good experience thus far. Well, good for you. It's certainly something that's, uh, whose time is, is due. Michelle, a couple of minutes only left, but I need your thoughts on the budget that has been tabled by the Government of Canada, right. the Liberal NDP coalition. What do you think? Well, they spent a lot of money. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I am concerned about the, the level of spending, uh, particularly deficit spending that we are seeing even after the pandemic. 
um, I, I, as well as the lack of material benefits for Canadians. I think a lot of people, even those listening to the show this morning, are going to say, look, um, my life isn't getting any more affordable. Housing prices are still really high. Um, you know, the cost of living, groceries, gas, those are all really high, high, high dollar value items right now. Mm-hmm. And that, but the budget didn't really have a material impact on that, but it did spend a lot of money. Um, so that's kind of where I think a lot of the the feedback is on this budget, again, across party lines. It's, it's a big spending budget, but it's not really clear on what how how it's going to solve some of these bigger problems that the country is facing right now. And the government should have a clear line of sight on that question, when they, especially given the amount of spending that we have. So, you know, we've, this budget will take us to, um, you know, 1.25 roughly trillion dollars in debt. Yep. That's an enormous amount of interest that we pay uh, on that debt that could be used for other things. Uh, and and it, it really does concern me. Um, and I and I hope that every Canadian is asking, you know, why why are we spending this much and seeing so little come out of it? Yeah, good points, Michelle. And by the way, before the month of April is over, the Bank of Canada and many other central banks will have raised uh, interest rates by at least uh, 0.25, if not a half point. Uh, so yes, right. in terms of being able to service the debt, uh, that is going to be more of a challenge going forward. The only way interest rates are going to go for the next long while is up. Good to talk to you again, Michelle. It's been a while. And thank you so much for making a little bit of time for us on a Sunday morning. Thanks so much for having me. As the war in Ukraine grinds on, many countries, including Canada, have been donating military equipment and providing humanitarian aid to hundreds of thousands of people at risk of dying as the Russians march in. This week at the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Committee meeting, Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagrama presented a motion that was universally backed, asking for the British Columbia government to change the law that prevents local police detachments from donating end-of-life body armor. The equipment usually has a use-by end of date by around 10 years or so, but Mayor Rob says uh, this could be useful helping save lives elsewhere rather than hitting the shredder. Rob Vagramov, Mayor of Port Moody, joins us now. Mr. Mayor, good morning and thanks for getting up early, Rob, to join us today. Hey, nothing better to do on a Sunday. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, a great suggestion, by the way, Rob. What's the background? What's the story that that the behind the law now that says when a police department like Port Moody uh, hits the best before date on some equipment, they have to shred it? Why is that? Well, this uh, this came into play uh, based on my briefing in uh, just around uh, 2010, just before uh, the Olympics there. And this is called the Body Armor Control Act. Okay. Uh, Section 8 of that law basically prohibits anybody from selling body armor for any purpose uh, without a license. And selling is described very, uh, very broadly, including donation and, and getting rid of it in any way. And, of course, police departments don't need or want a license because they don't sell body armor. Right. Hopefully, anyway. And so uh, this is a, a sort of a special circumstance where this stuff would be going out of country. And uh, we're basically just asking for an exemption from the public safety minister to, to let us make this tiny contribution, whatever we, whatever we have, 
uh, and allow any any other municipality to do the same. And typically, though, uh, when those body armor and other bits of police gear hit their expiry date, because of the existing law, Rob, then that material just has to be destroyed, right? That's right. Sent back to the manufacturer and uh, probably end up in the landfill, uh, from what I'm told. So this is this is one of those uh, cases where a donation could could go a long way, and it could uh, it also has has basically no impact to the to the taxpayer. Exactly, because it's been paid for for, and one presumes that a, a bulletproof vest, for example, uh, it has it has a lifespan of uh, many years. It's not months. It's a piece of equipment that's going to last a long time. So it's long since paid for by the taxpayers. Uh, by the time its its use has its official use has ended, then so Rob, what sort of uh, what sort of reaction? Action did you get from your fellow municipal politicians when this one came up? Uh, this one was nodded through, and, and folks uh, folks supported it uh, unanimously at the committee. And I, I thank all my lower mainland mayors for the for the support there. Um, I think it's it, it passed unanimously because it is kind of a no brainer. We have this equipment around the region and probably around the country as well. Um, why not put it to good use? Um, and instead of instead of having it go to landfill here, absolutely. So lots of support from local mayors. Now, obviously, step the next step to take is to take that very popular resolution to Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister. Have you approached him at all with this yet, Rob? And do you sense any appetite for it? So I wrote a, a letter when this came out of our police board a couple of weeks ago on the twenty fifth. Um, haven't heard back directly from the minister. There's been some conversations uh, with our local MLA to try to get some uh, briefing calls done and see what could be done under the existing legislation. But um, I think to, to get that kind of exemption, it's going to have to come uh, most likely from the minister. Uh, and we haven't heard from him directly yet, so hopefully they're hopefully they're working on it. Right, and and as, as minister, uh, he can provide a ministerial override, so to speak, on the legislation without having to go to the House and do all sorts of formalities. He, as minister, can override that clause, can't he? That's right. It's similar to a lot of the orders that were issued uh, under COVID. You know, this is stuff that is temporary. We don't want, we definitely don't want police departments to be uh, handing this stuff out all willy-nilly um after after this conflict so if it's a really specific situation it's time uh, it's time limited i think an order would be appropriate but of course that's up to the minister to, to decide sure and of course there'll have to be some federal involvement as well because one would assume that uh, if there is uh, the go-ahead from victoria then there would be a collection uh, thing going on in which p- municipalities province-wide would be encouraged to send their surplus gear to a, a gathering point and then presumably that would get put on put probably on a canadian forces plane rob and fast-tracked right to ukraine right well, I, I would hope so. And in the meantime, we've had a lot of folks reach out uh, from the from the Ukrainian community and folks that are just generally trying to uh, collect donations. There's a, a gentleman who's uh, collecting um, and, and sending, basically making uh, big shipments out uh, of Vancouver, uh, pallets worth of stuff uh, out that way. And this is an ex RCMP member who's been who's been doing this for the last few weeks. So we're between random people reaching out and the Ukrainian community itself, it, it looks like there's, and then on top of that, as you mentioned, the, the Canadian forces 
who are providing very generously, and I thank the, the, gov- the federal government for the work that they've been doing on this. Uh, uh, between all these different sources, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there's uh, going to be a way to get this stuff over there in a safe way without this ending up in the hands of gangs, which, again, is the whole impetus for this for this well, prevention. Would taxpayers place. be surprised, Mayor Vagramov, at the amount of gear that uh, is discarded by police forces province-wide on an annual basis? Uh, I don't think on it. I, I haven't seen the numbers province-wide uh, on, a, on a yearly basis, but uh, as you say, it, all of this gear does have uh, use-by date. Right. And so I would, uh, I, I, you could safely assume that every, every bulletproof vest in the province uh, that is deployed out there does end up uh, in the landfill, and of course, there's good reasons for that, right? I mean, we have we have certification dates on a lot of stuff that you could argue we throw away a little early mm-hmm. to make sure that it's it's working up to our standards. But as a Ukrainian, I can I can assure you that right now, uh, especially with some of the horrors that we've seen come out of that country, uh, it's uh, it, you know it's kind of it goes beyond some of those uh, some of those. Uh, certifications, and I think people would be able to put almost anything to good use. Indeed, and I wish you considerable success with this initiative, Rob Vagramov, and I hope that Canadian mayors and other officials right across the country pick up on this. Uh, it's, as you say, it's already long since bought and paid for, uh, and rather than toss it into a landfill, why not put it on a plane and help out some people who could really use it? Uh, we, that's our question of the day, too, Rob, and, and so far, lots of people very much on in your corner on this one. Just before I let you go, and we're grateful for your time on a Sunday morning, as as COVID restrictions, you referenced COVID earlier on, Rob, as COVID restrictions have come to be lifted and uh, orders removed and that sorts of thing, we're, we're in a new dimension now uh, as people um, start to mix it up a little bit more, gather more frequently and that sort of thing. At City Hall, what sort of feedback are you getting? Uh, are people complaining about, God, the masks are coming off too fast, you people are trying to fast track us right back into the hospitals what sort of feedback is at the municipal level i know this is dr bonnie henry's jurisdiction but a lot of Of people just pick up the phone and call city hall and rant anyway what kind of feedback are you getting (laughs) well so far at the local level i think the the number one complaint has been uh why can't we come to city hall and uh why why aren't the politicians off of zoom yet so that's i you know the feedback i've been getting is is uh folks are excited that that we We've we've won the war against COVID, and uh, that's that. I think there's I, I don't think that there's enough um, uh, celebration from the from the public sector on this one. The, the public health officials across our province have done such an incredible job. Obviously, we got to keep our guard out. Sure, the new variant circulating and whatnot, but the ninety plus percent vax rate. Uh, the the fact that we've outperformed almost any jurisdiction in North America. This has been an unbelievable success story, and I think. Folks need to be applauded. Nurses need to be getting a raise. And, and frankly, I think we should have a, at, least, at least for a year or two, uh, maybe a national uh, holiday to, to celebrate the fact that we, we managed to, to get by uh, certainly not unscathed, but better off than a lot of people around the world. No question about it. Rob Vagramoff, a pleasure to have you aboard on a Sunday morning, sir. Uh, congratulations on this initiative. We hope that uh, you succeed uh, considerably. Thank you so much. Have a great day. 
A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. Danny Renouf is a registered dietitian uh, here to talk about salt. And I should also mention our guest is also a Master's of Science in Healthcare and Epidemiology and is a certified diabetes educator and works at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. A more appropriate and filling uh, introduction. Danny Renouf, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's good to have you with us, Danny. It's about salt, and salt is something that Canadians... Well, first of all, Canadians are rather partial to salt. There's a new study out, but even before the new study, we knew Canadians really like salt, don't we? We do, and unfortunately, we consume about, you know, two to threefold the amount that we are required to consume for good health. Obviously, we know salt is important for many of our body's functions. Sure. But too much of a good thing is always uh, going to have consequences. And yes, we're seeing those, unfortunately, in our uh, community. So the, the big knock against salt uh, all the way along, as I can recall, has been it's, it's, it's not good for your heart. It can raise your blood pressure, which increases a, a risk of heart disease and stroke. Is that still the number one complaint? Absolutely. What salt does is it actually makes your blood vessels tighter. So it's becoming much harder for the blood to pump through the body. And this doesn't happen overnight. This is a lifestyle matter that that accumulates over years. And because high blood pressure is silent, we don't feel sick, we have no symptoms, we can be living with high blood pressure for many years before we actually find out we have it. So let's uh, talk a little bit about a brand new study, though, because, Danny, this is this is uh, it was published recently in the Lancet and the American College of Cardiology. It's a multi country survey that followed uh, uh, hundreds of patients who uh, were uh, people who had suffered heart failure. Tell us more about the the, the, uh, modus operandi of the of the study, how who they found to study and what they came up with, because some of the results are kind of surprising. Right. So this was an excellent study. I mean, it couldn't have been better designed. I, you know, they followed groups, a larger cohort of patients over about a year. And what they did was put one group of patients on about a 2000 milligram per day sodium diet and restricted the other group to a 1500 milligram per day diet. Now, these patients were followed very closely by a dietitian. In real life, we don't have the financial resources to follow patients this closely, write diets for them that they can adhere to and uh, be able to see these results in a real-life situation. In real life, Sterling, there are people that are taking 4,000 milligrams a day of salt, and to talk them down to 2,000 overnight is very difficult. However, this study was well-designed, and it did show that between 1,500 and 2,000 thousand milligrams, there isn't really a big difference. And I would say that makes sense. When you have someone on a very low salt diet already, you may not see those differences, but it's great that we can know that now that we don't need to over restrict our patients. But in my practice, I still need to communicate with patients regularly about trying to lower their salt intake. Sure. Now, Danny, you said moments ago, and I couldn't agree with you more, too much of even a good thing is just too much. But on the other side of that spectrum is too little. So where's too little salt? I mean, as you said earlier, it is important, an important component to our diets uh, as, as a component. So what's too little? Right. So, you know, there, there are individuals who are on very, very low salt diets and, you know, 1500 milligrams to me is very low. However, the study did not have any adverse outcomes on these patients, but they followed them again for one year. And, you know, I think the other piece of this is the outcome was death, right? Did these people die from adverse events? 
But there are many quality of life issues when you talk to somebody and ask them to bring down their salt to this level. It's just not sustainable, I think, long term. And what we need to do is really explore all the different factors that influence a person's decision to eat a certain food or eat a certain way and be really respectful of that when we work with them. So um, this, again, is a great study in a very controlled setting. But we as consumers have to be careful that we don't just, you know, exactly what you say, don't just uh, stop our goals and uh say, I can eat as much salt as I want. You right. still need to work on it. Right. So this, the findings is, though, that in terms of, of modifying your diet, it, it is beneficial, but the modification uh, spectrum is is smaller than perhaps uh, originally thought. But let's talk a little bit more about uh, about salt consumption. And we talk about too much of it being um, increasing your uh, elevated blood pressure and risk of heart attack and so on. But if too little is a problem, what's the physical risk there, Danny? Sure. So the reason that people have lower than normal salt levels in their body isn't really related to salt intake. It's more related to the fluid balance. And there are certain diseases where people have very low salt levels. And that can actually lead to coma and death as well. Mm. So it's the same with every nutrient too much can cause problems with your health and too little can cause problems with your health. But certainly the consequences of high sodium intake is what we're seeing, you know, worldwide, right? Um, And the hyponatremia or lower than normal salt levels is something we see less commonly. So, Danny, I suppose as we try to perhaps even pay attention, more attention to the degree of salt intake we uh, we do on a daily basis, uh, that's beyond what you sprinkle on with the shaker onto your scrambled eggs or whatever in the morning. Everything, pretty much everything we eat has salt in it. Any kind of uh, prepared food or uh, it, it has salt in it. So it, if, if, you, if you're kind of on the borderline, label reading is not a bad idea, is it? That is a wonderful tool. And, you know, in my practice, again, we want people out there to have the tools and confidence to manage their own health. And label reading is a great technique to do so. And if you don't know where to start, you can always seek out um, the support of a dietitian. You can start with 811, which is HealthLink. It's a free service. Oh, okay. You can, yes, you can give them a call and speak to a dietitian over the phone, and they can give you very good general advice about how to start label reading. Don't take matters into your own hands. Talk to a professional. And we're very lucky in BC that we have HealthLink, this free service that you can access for all your health questions. And if you need further follow-up, certainly they can direct you to a a, a dietitian. Um, It's a private practice dietitian can see you specifically if you have further concerns about your health. Danny, but do seek out that. Yeah. yeah, almost out of time here, but I want to know something really silly, perhaps a basic question I should have asked at the beginning. How do you know whether your salt levels are okay or not? Is it done by a blood test? How can you tell? Mm, I think that it's, it's a urine test. A spot urine test can tell you how much sodium you're having. A blood test would not be able to tell you that, but someone will need to interpret that for you, if, whether it's your GP or your dietitian. But listen, most of us are eating too much salt. So make the assumption that you're probably not getting 2,300 milligrams per day. You're probably getting more. Right. And be proactive about it. So the, the, the point is, the point of the takeaway from this conversation on a Sunday morning is you're probably already eating too much. Be careful. 
<laughs> right. right. Exactly. And be proactive, right? Like there is something you can do about it. Any reduction is going to help you. All right. And uh, also we have HealthLink at 811 for more questions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Danny, great to have you on the show this morning. Thanks for getting up early on a Sunday to do this with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you. Danny Take care. Re- Danny Renouf is a registered dietitian at Vancouver St. Paul's Hospital. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.